begin our time together by asking you this question. Why are you here? Why are you here? I want you to think about that. There's probably a dozen different reasons that would go through different people's heads, but think about that question. Why are you here? We asked the leaders of our church this question last week, and we told them the same thing we'll tell you. Is when we ask that question, why are you here, we're actually asking the question, why did you choose to come into this room with these people on a Sunday morning? Sunday could be a second Saturday, a day where you could grocery shop, a day where you could get extra sleep, a day where you could get chores done around the house, a day where you could cut the grass, mow the lawn, a day for you to do what you need to do to get ready and prepared for the next week. So why are you here? Why did you choose to get up this morning, get dressed, and for those of you who have kids, go through the chaos of getting the kids ready, head out the door, and show up here on a Sunday morning? Why are you here? You know, this question, why are you here, really challenges us to think about what our original purpose and what our main purpose is for why we're here. Not for just why we exist, but why we make a priority out of a Sunday morning gathering. You know, there's a million different things that we could do. But you chose to be here this morning. When I think about that question and how I would want to answer it, I believe the reason that you are here is because of this. I believe you want to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself. I do. I believe you want to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself. You probably drove in the parking lot today and you're probably wondering why in the world is this big, massive 18-wheeler sitting in our parking lot on the edge of the road? I mean, that doesn't look cute. Maybe it's what some of you thought. Well, we didn't put it there to look cute. We put it there because there was a group of people who wanted to be a part of something that was bigger than themselves. A group of people from our church who started a nonprofit called Mission 2540 who's collecting supplies for people in eastern Kentucky who are suffering because of the flooding that took place there. They wanted to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And by the way, you still have a week to help them collect those supplies. We're trying to fill that truck. The whole list of supplies is on the truck. You can go out there, take a picture of it, go to the store, drop them off by next Sunday. You can drop them off here next Sunday. And also, there's a website you can go to, mission25-40.org, you can also find out drop-off locations there. But they're there. The reason that exists is because there's a group of people that want to be a part of something bigger than yourselves. I believe that that's why you're here this morning. You want to be a part of something that's bigger than you. You want to fulfill your ultimate purpose here on this earth. Let me say it like this. You want your life to count. When all of this is said and done, you want to have a significant meaning as to why you live. You want your life to count. 
This morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. That's the first Gospel of the New Testament. We're going to be looking at the Great Commandment. Last week, you might remember, we talked about the Great Commission at the very end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. This week, we're going to talk about the Great Commandment, not to be confused with the Great Commission. This is in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to walk through this Great Commandment together this morning, but as you're turning there, I want you to have a little bit of context as to what's going on here in Matthew chapter 22. Okay, this is the week of, this is Passion Week. This is the week of Christ's crucifixion. He is preparing to go to the cross. It's Wednesday, midweek of Passion Week. And here you have Jesus that is coming into town. You, you know the story, and he's getting a lot of attention. All of a sudden, there are people literally lined up in the streets like it's a parade, hailing this guy as king. So what does this do to the religious leaders of that day? You might have heard of them called the Sadducees or the Pharisees. What does this do to them? Well, they become threatened by the growing attention that Jesus is getting, by his growing popularity. So what they seek to do is they seek to discredit Christ. If they can make Christ look foolish, then perhaps he won't grow and continue to grow in this popularity. He was threatening their very nature. So that's what they seek to do. They want to discredit him, and it begins in chapter 22, verse 34. It says this, but when the Pharisees had heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, what happens there is the Sadducees gave two different attempts to discredit Christ. They fell miserably at both of those attempts. So now you have the Pharisees who have caught wind of this, and then they gather together. The Bible says they begin to plot. They begin to scheme. What can we do to discredit Christ? Verse 35, and one of them, which was a lawyer, they chose the lawyer in the bunch to do the talking, asked him, Jesus, this question for what? To test him. There's your motive. This isn't a sincere question. This isn't a, a question that someone is genuinely asking because they want a genuine answer. This is a question to trap someone. This is a question to discredit someone. And this is the question in verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandments in the law. Now, understanding the law, you've read through, some of you have, the book of Leviticus. It's a hard one to get through, but if you read through the book of Leviticus, what you'll know is there's 613-plus different laws. 300 of those are prohibitions. That means 300 of those are things you're not supposed to do. And then you got another 300-plus of those are things that you're supposed to do. So they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, okay, we got all of these things we're not supposed to do. We have all of these things that we're supposed to do. Which one is the greatest? If we can get you to answer that one has greater value than the other, then perhaps we can discredit you. So the Sadducees and Pharisees, they would argue all the time over which one was the greatest. This wasn't new to them. Which one was the misdemeanor? Which one is the felony? That's what they're trying to figure out. So they bring this question to Jesus, and they hope that he's going to rank one higher than the other. And in verse 37, it says that Jesus answered and said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He directly quotes that from De Deuteronomy chapter 6. And when he continues, he's going to directly quote that from Leviticus chapter 19. Watch in verse 38. This is the great and first commandment, and here's uh, Leviticus 19 quote. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, and your soul, or your soul and your mind. And then you shall love people as yourself. And verse 40 says, on these two commandments depend all the law 
and the prophets. What Jesus is saying there is he's saying all 613 plus laws that you're aware of, they all really hinge to these primary two. In fact, the second one, love people as yourself, hinges on the first one, loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. I want to answer two questions for you this morning, and then we're going to be done. Two questions. The first question I want to answer is, what does it mean to love God? The second question is, what does it mean to love people? But we're going to answer the first question first. What does it mean to love God? You know, love is a funny concept, isn't it? It's a funny concept. If I were to ask you this morning what you love, you would give me all sorts of a variety of answers. I talked to the students about this this week at Chapel at Elka, and I told them it is a very funny concept, and I gave them this example. I said I was scrolling through one of our students, one of our high school male students, I was scrolling through his Instagram page. Okay, that was already dangerous, right? But what I noticed is he had a picture, and then he had some stuff written in his bio right below his picture. So right below his name, he had four different emojis. The first emoji was the emoji of a heart, okay, representing love. So he had this emoji of a heart. The second emoji was a purple square box with a white cross in the center of it. You know, being the, I guess, the, the common sense guy that I am, I'm thinking, okay, it must mean love God or love Christ. Well, the third emoji was a taco, And then the fourth emoji was an emoji of a girl, and he tagged his girlfriend in parentheses beside it. And on one hand, I'm thinking, what a winner. I mean, what a winner that a high school guy would prioritize tacos over his girlfriend. (laughs) I mean, he gets it, right? He gets it. But on the other hand, I was thinking, what a loser that he would actually admit that on Instagram, and his girlfriend is still with him. Like, it blew my mind. But that's what love is. Like, love is a funny concept. Like, you can fit tacos in the same sentence as people, tacos in the same sentence as Christ. It's a funny concept. When Jesus commanded us to love God, this command was staked in our loyalty to him. It wasn't meant to be a warm, fuzzy feeling that we get inside. We love God because of how we feel at the moment. We love God because we have this warm sensation that runs through our veins at the moment. Loving God was not intended to be sensational. Loving God was not intended to be a feeling, a warm, fuzzing feeling inside of us. Listen, loving God is about prioritizing him above everything else in life. That's what loving God was all about. Loving God was Jesus' way of saying he needs to be king in your life. He needs to be the top priority in your life. There doesn't need to be anything competing with the allegiance you swear with King Jesus. In fact, if you remember the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, what did God command us to do? He said, you shall have no other gods before me. Some translations say it like this, and I love this translation. It says, no other gods, only me. See, loving God is not a warm feeling. It's not about romance. It's about waking up each day and allowing the affections of our heart to be stirred by God so that our heart will not chase anyone or anything other than him. That's what loving God is all about. This is what it means to die to self daily. Your self will chase everything under the sun other than the Lord God. And dying to yourself means I'm not going to chase my own dreams, my own aspirations, the things that I want to to, to do that I think will fulfill me. Dying to self means I'm going to quit living, living the way that I want to live. 
and I'm going to start following Jesus and make him the top priority in my life. See, Jesus says, this is the greatest commandment. This is the greatest thing, he says, that you can do in your life is to love God. And then Jesus moves on to give us really three. He really gives us one specific way that we can do it, but he does it over three different concepts. So we're going to look at those three different concepts this morning because that's how Jesus did it. But he's only making one point throughout these three different concepts. The first way he says is to love God with all your heart. He says, love God with all your heart. Isn't that where relationship with God is supposed to begin? Is in the heart? We begin to love God when we surrender our entirety of our hearts over to him. And when you surrender your heart over to him, it becomes a wholehearted, enthusiastic, sincere kind of love. It's not a love that bores you to tears. It's not a love out of obligation. It's a sincere love. It's an enthusiastic love. It's a love that says, you know what? I am willingly laying down my life to follow you. I am surrendering it all because you are greater than anything that I could get in this world. If I could sum up this phrase, love God with all of your heart, into two words, this is how I would do it. Jesus first. Can you say that this morning? Jesus first. Say it again. Jesus first. That's what we're shooting here for. To live a life where Jesus is first in all aspects of our lives. When it comes to my home life, we're keeping Jesus first. When it comes to my career, I'm going to chase after it, but I'm going to keep Jesus first. When it comes to academics, I'm going to keep Jesus first. When it comes to athletics, Jesus is going to be first. When it comes to finances, Jesus is going to be first. First, when it comes to my relationships, Jesus is going to be first. This will keep you teenagers from compromising in those relationships when Jesus is always first. And anyone who tries to cross the line of Jesus needs to be kicked out. (laughs) Because Jesus is first and your heart only has room for one ruler. And that's Jesus Christ. Loving God with all of my heart means keeping Jesus first. So he says, love God with all of your heart. And then he moves on. He says, love God with all of your soul. The root word for soul here is the word breath. It's literally taken from the same word. When Jesus says, love God with all of your soul, he's actually taking us back to the Garden of Eden. And in the garden, when God created man from the dust, how did man gain life? He breathed breath into man's lungs. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus says to love God with all of your soul, he's saying to love God with every single breath that is in your lungs. It's your breath that fills my lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath. You know that song? In my lungs. So what? So we pour out our praise to you, only Lord, right? The breath in our lungs, I'm a terrible musician, by the way, but you stay, nobody's leaving, that's good, all right? But the point of that is that any breath that God breathes in our lungs is to be used to honor and to glorify him. The same concept, keeping Jesus first, but if I could sum this phrase up into another phrase, I would say it like this. Everything in life is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. 
And I know that you and I want to make things about everything else. We want to make it about us and our accomplishments and our acceptance and our approval. We want to make it about us. But life was intended, when you live up under the jurisdiction of Jesus Christ, life was intended to be lived for him and him alone. It's all about him. So he says, love God with all of your heart. Keep Jesus first. Love God with all of your soul. Every breath in your lung, allow it to be used for God. And then the third one he says is this. Love God with all of your mind. Love God with all of your mind. Now, I love how Jesus does this. I think this is fascinating. Jesus connects the heart and the soul with the mind. In other words, Jesus is implying here that your mind and your heart are not disconnected. They're not disconnected. Do you remember what Solomon said in Proverbs? I think it's 23.7. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The question I ask when I read scriptures like that is, how does my heart think? That's weird. And you should ask that too. Because what Jesus is saying is your heart and your mind, they're not disconnected. Listen to me, church family. The things you put in your mind will become the things that rule your heart. Do you hear me? The things that you put in your mind will be the things that rule your heart. If you spend hour upon hour scrolling through stories on Instagram, and yet you are struggling with feelings of envy, it should not surprise you. Because you're pouring something in your mind that should not actually be there. You're comparing your life with the lives of other people around you. Their best life at that. If you replace the real world with hour upon hour of the virtual world, then you no longer know how to relate to the world in which you actually live. And Jesus is saying, I want you to love God, with all of your mind. I don't want you to get caught up in the trap of comparing your lives with other people. You start to think, you know what, well, I don't look like her. People love her because of the way she looks, and they don't love me because I can't measure up. I'm not that athletic. That guy spent 18 hours making that one video, and you think you're supposed to go and do it in the first try. It's a comparison game. Man, those people, they look quite accomplished in their lives. Those marriages, man, they look healthy. That's a family that I wish was like mine. I wish I didn't have. They don't have chaos in their home. I got chaos in mine. And you just start comparing. These people, they go on trips. We don't get to go on that many trips. It's the same thing with movies or novels and books or even music. And we wonder why our kids are struggling with anxiety and depression and stress and loneliness, low self-esteem, physical issues such as the lack of sleep. It's, becoming, it's coming because they're thinking wrongly about the things of God. They're viewing the world in which they live with an inaccurate lens. Colossians 3 tells us to set our minds on things that are what? Above. Not on things of this earth. This is one of the beauties of kingdom education. Now, I know that not everybody is in private school and is in kingdom education, but, you know, we do have Elka here. And this is one of the beauties about Elka, okay? I, I just want to throw that out there. But, you know what, I'm not discrediting any other school in our county. I think our schools are great schools here. We have some great teachers here, and uh, we support them. We pray for them. We did all week this week, seven days of prayer, specifically for our local schools and our local administration. 
However, one of the beauties about kingdom education is what they teach you is that right beliefs will drive right values, and right values will drive right actions. What we try to spend our time doing as, as humans, as humanity, is we want to correct people's actions, correct people's behaviors. Your behaviors are bad, so we want your behaviors to be right. So we work backwards. Well, in order to have right behaviors, we got to put different kinds of values in you, right? Well, beliefs are what drive values. So beliefs really drive behaviors. And one of the beauties about kingdom education is they invest in you over and over and over again the values of the Bible, the beliefs, the accurate beliefs about God, so that those will drive the way you behave in society around you, so that you can, you can stand out, you can lead the charge, is their slogan. You can lead the charge in the world around you. But how do we get there? How do we do this? This is a process to love God with your mind. And I want to give you the three steps real quickly this morning, okay? Step one of loving God with your mind is you have to take in the Bible. You have to spend time in the Word. Like I said, in kingdom education, the Word is the lens by which they teach everything through. So even you, if you're in a public school or anything like that as a teenager, listen, the Word of God has got to be in you so that you can discern truth from error. So you got, you got Bible intake, and you allow the Word, you start studying the Word, which leads to a second step, which is a clear and correct thinking about God. Because you're reading the Bible, you're discovering who he is and how he acts in, in particular situations. You're learning from the implications of that, how you should act in those same situations. And it leads you to think correctly about the Lord, rightly, clearly, and correctly about him. So now your life is beginning to get shaped by the Bible. And this leads you to step three, which is an emotional embrace of God. You're applying these things to your life. And guess what happens when that starts to happen? You start living counterculturally. Because you don't see the world through the same lens that others see the world. You see it through a biblical lens. Biblical worldview is what they call it, rather than a secular worldview. So that's what it means to love God with all of your mind. But here's what I want you to hear this morning. What's the point that Jesus is making when he says, I want you to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and even your mind? The point is this. There is only room for one ruler of your heart. Church family, if there's only room for one ruler of your heart, let it be God. Let it be God. So what does it mean to love God? It means to love him with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind. And then the second question I want to answer this morning is, what does it mean to love people? What does it mean to love people? Now this one you're probably thinking, well, I pretty, have, pretty much have a grasp, grasp on that. But again, going back to what I taught the students this week, I want to share it with you too because I do think it will radically transform the way that we love people. In order to do this, I want to begin by saying this, you are designed to love. Like that's why you are, that's what you're designed to do. Think about it. God created you in his own image. God is love. So you, when you exist in his likeness, should be a man or a woman of love as well. You were designed, created to love. I want you to flip over to 1 John, very back of your Bible. 1 John, if you can't make it there, that's fine. Uh, Eric, by the way, let's put our hands together for Eric. Every single week, he makes all of this possible. And the only time he's noticed is when something goes wrong. But thank you, Eric, for all that you do. 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Listen to what it says. Listen to what it says. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Beloved, talking to a group of believers, if God so loved us, and he did, 
then we also ought to love one another. I love what, 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 what this is saying here. Listen, the reason many of us don't love like God is because many of us have not been affected by the love of God. Do you follow what that means? The reason many of us don't love like him is because we haven't been transformed and changed by the love that he gives to us. We're only able to give what we first received. And as we understand and grow more and more aware of the love of God for us, we're able to give that same kind of love more and more freely to other people. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I love this word ought. Okay, caught up in this word ought is a moral obligation. You are morally obligated as a child of God to love other people. But it has to be more than that. My wife and I, we celebrate 13 years together tomorrow. 13 years has felt like a day. But you know what? If we go out tomorrow evening for dinner and I were to say to her, you know what? The Bible says I'm morally obligated to love you, so I guess I'll love you for the next 13 too. I, that's not going to roll well, right? And if you know my wife, yeah, I'll probably have a plate smashed in my head, but I wouldn't highly recommend that. Seriously, but, but um, not seriously. But, but the thing is, is, it has to be deeper than moral obligation. And what I love about this word ought is it is deeper than moral obligation. In fact, it carries with it the weight of design. It carries with it the weight of design. You were created to love. You were designed to Love. Just like a fish was designed for water and ought to swim, just like a bird was designed for the air and ought to fly, you were created for love. You were created to love other people. Church, you do not play fetch with your parakeet in the front yard. Why? Because your parakeet wasn't designed to go fetch a stick. You don't take the fish out of the aquarium at night and tuck it in bed with you. Why? Because the fish will die. It wasn't designed to exist, to exist outside of that environment. And if you are a child of God, listen to me, the call on your life is to love. It's what you were created to do. But when you mistreat people, when you gossip and slander and ridicule a brother or sister in Christ or anyone for that matter, guess what you are doing? You are just like the neighbor who's in the front yard trying to play fetch with his parakeet. It's not what you were designed to do. When you hold a grudge and you're not willing to forgive and you hold people hostage by the sins that they have committed against you or you're unwilling to go and reconcile a relationship that maybe you have tarnished and you have, have hurt, guess what you look like? You look like a guy who's taking a fish out of the aquarium at night and putting them in the doll crate hoping it will go to sleep. It's ridiculous for the child of God to act that way. It's not the way that scripture leads us to act. It's not in harmony with the way that Jesus lived his life among us. You were designed to love. So if that is true, the question we must ask this morning is what should our love look like? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See what John just did there? He connected the way that we love other people with the way that God first loves us. The only way you're ever going to love people like Jesus loves you is you have to be transformed and changed by the love of Jesus for you. 
What I want to do is I want to give you a couple characteristics of the love of God this morning. I don't have time to go through an exhaustive list, but what I want to do this morning is I want this list of characteristics to be a mirror for you. As we walk through them, I want you to be asking yourself the question, do I love like that? Like if that's how God loves me and I'm supposed to love like him, do I love like that? The first thing I want you to see about the love of God is this. The love of God is undeserving. The love of God is undeserving. Now, for you and I, it's easy for us to love people who are like us, isn't it? That's the easy thing. It's easy for us to love people who have the same athletic hobbies that we do. It's easy for us to love people if we like theater and they like theater. It's easy for us to love people if we like J's and they wear J's. It's easy for us to like people who dress like us, who go to the same places that we go, or hang in the same circles that we hang. It's easy for us to love people like that. But God doesn't love the people that just deserve it. God loves the people who doesn't deserve it. Listen, the most amazing thing about the cross is that Jesus wasn't dying for his friends who admired him. Jesus was dying for his enemies who despised him. Did you hear that? Jesus didn't go to the cross to die for a group of people who were going to admire him. He went to the cross to die for a group of people who absolutely despised him. Colossians, as well as Romans, tells us that because of our sins, we are alienated from God. And more so than even that, we are enemies now of God. We have rejected him. We have rebelled against him. How did Jesus respond to our rejection and our rebellion? How did Jesus respond when we were enemies of his? It says in Romans chapter 5, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies of his, Christ went and died. It should blow your mind that God didn't say I unfriended you and unfollowed you and blocked you from my social media accounts. No, even when you did not deserve his love, he said, you know what? I'm going to chase, I'm going to pursue, and I'm going to love anyway. My question to you this morning is do you love like that? Do you love even the people in your life that do not deserve an ounce of love from you? Secondly, the love of God is self-sacrificing. It's self-sacrificing. It's undeserving. It's self-sacrificing. Think about this for a moment. The depth of Christ's love for you. Think about this. Our sinless Savior was dying on the cross while being mocked by the very people he came to save. Mm. Jesus was dying on the cross, church, while being ridiculed and taunted and spat on and beaten, the Bible says, beyond recognition by the very people he came to save. And it says when he did that, he did so willingly. Willingly he gave up his life. Yet you and I, we go shopping for a love that's comfortable and convenient. Do you love like this? Third, forgiving. The love of God is forgiving. The epicenter of the cross is the forgiveness of sins. This is where we go wrong, church family. We don't love the way Jesus called us to love because we're not willing to forgive the way Jesus has forgiven. Hmm. Think about that. We don't love the way Jesus calls us to love because we aren't willing to forgive the way Jesus forgives. We let bitterness grow in our hearts. We become condemning. We keep record of people's wrongs. We gossip, we ridicule, we slander. I want to wake you up this morning by saying this. It is impossible to love people while simultaneously holding a grudge against them. Impossible. 
this morning, are you willing to forgive the people who have hurt you, offended you, slandered you, forsaken you, betrayed you? Jesus did. And he calls us to do the same. Are you willing to go seek forgiveness from someone that you have betrayed, you have hurt, you have wounded, you have offended? Jesus would. He didn't do that, so we don't have to worry about that part. So Jesus loved the undeserving. His love was self-sacrificing. He loved in a forgiving kind of way. And finally, his love was incarnational. His love was incarnational. Listen, I love this. Incarnational is a fancy way of just saying God incarnate is Jesus in flesh. It's making the invisible visible, essentially. It's putting flesh and skin and bone on something you can't see. It's incarnational, okay? With that in mind, pay close attention to the next verse in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. He's invisible. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You see that? God, who is invisible, no one has ever seen him, but we make his we make him visible when we incarnate his love to other people. Jesus said it again, or Paul did. By this, they will know that you're my disciples. By this, they'll know that you love me. By this, they'll know that you're a follower of Christ. By what? By the way that you love one another. The proof of the very existence of God is found in the way we as believers love each other. I say this church family, nothing is more radical than that. You and I live in a community who longs to know God. They just don't know it. And you and I are the greatest apologetic to the watching world when we love each other the way that God has first loved us. What does it mean to love God? It means to love him with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. What does it mean to love other people? It means to love them with the same depth and brevity that Jesus has first loved you with. Father God, we come to you this morning and we admit where we fall short. There are some in this room who for the first time wanna give their lives to you. They have recognized even today that they have never encountered the greatness of God's love for them. That they have never encountered a Christ who came and died on a cross for their sins. They've never encountered this kind of love. And today they've heard it for the first time and I pray that your spirit will work in a way that only he can. And that today they will recognize, I wanna love like that. I wanna surrender my heart, my life over to the Lord and I wanna begin loving like him. I can't love like him if I haven't been affected by his love. So now that I have heard it and seen it, pray that you would change me and allow me to love like that. And there are others in here Quite frankly, Lord, they are believers in Jesus. But today, they've recognized there are things they need to let go of. There are things they need to seek forgiveness for. There are things they need to forgive others for. God, I pray that you'll help us be a church that takes your word seriously, even when we don't want to obey, that we're willing to obey because we know that there's only one ruler for our heart, and that's you. We wanna say yes to the Lord. And if you ask us to seek forgiveness, if you ask us to go and forgive, God, give us the courage and the boldness to follow you faithfully. We wanna live for you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.
church, shout it out. Hey. 